his mind. And here is your host, Gary Cacciolio. Welcome everyone to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I am your host, Gary Cacciolillo. And before we get started, I want to thank everybody for listening and also thank the contributors to my show who are Candace Sanderson, author of The Reluctant Messenger, Joseph Simkavi, author of How to Kiss the Universe, Mizaida, psychic, author, spellcaster, and root worker. And you can find her at MizAida.com, M-I-S-S-A-I-D-A.com. And this episode is being sponsored by Ginger Glasser. And you can find Ginger at tarotbyginger.com. And she's a tarot reader, evidential medium, and healer. And again, that's at tarotbyginger.com. And also, this episode is being sponsored by Alan Questel. And you can find him at uncommonsensing.com, U-N-C-O-M-O-N-S-E-N-S-I-N-G.com. And you can also find his latest book, Intentional Acts of Kindness, on Amazon. And Intentional Acts of Kindness is definitely something we can use. And now, without further ado, our guest for today is Sky Alexandra. And she has been on before. And uh, it's always an honor to have her. Her books are some of the books that really inspired me or, or guided me in how to read tarot. And... Um, it really affected my life. And she also has a new book out called The Kitchen Witch. Thank you for coming on today. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, so, so always thank you for, for sharing your knowledge in these books, you know, so people can can learn from you. Um, what, what, is, uh, what inspired the, the newest book, Kitchen Witch? Well, actually, the truth of the matter is that my editor came to me and said, hey, are you interested in doing a book about this? And I said, sure, I'd love to do it. (laughs) (laughs) Now, that's really how it happened. But um, I think what what I'm noticing as a trend is that kitchen witchery, which is a really ancient practice, is becoming a lot more popular now because it is... um, Back to basics, it's relatively simple. You don't have to know a lot of arcane languages and esoteric symbols and all that sort of stuff mm-hmm. to practice kitchen witchery. And so a lot of people are finding they want to get into witchcraft, they want to do magic, but they don't want to study for 20 years before they can actually practice it. Right. That's definitely true. Um, so what... You know, when, when I think about the whole cooking thing, you know, it always makes me think about, like, you know, celebrations, you know, which brings me back to sort of like some of the pagan rituals. Is, is any of that involved in the in the book, like the idea of just, you know, putting ingredients in the food that are sacred, that are going to bring people together to, um, I don't know, do whatever it is humans are doing? <laughs> yes, absolutely. That's a very big part of it. The celebration of food, the celebration of family and friendship. I mean, in our everyday rituals and in our sacred mm-hmm. rituals as well, food shared among friends, breaking bread with family, that's a very big part of it. And it has been for thousands of years. 
and in kitchen witchery. We really uh, honor that and mm-hmm. celebrate it at a higher level, perhaps, than some of the other traditions within witchcraft. Mm-hmm. We see the everyday as sacred. Mm-hmm. When, when doing this, does the entire people that are involved with the food have to know that there was some magical intention placed on the food before eating it? Or can we just give this out to anybody? It doesn't matter. Who knows? Just the chef could put like a love spell on some wine. And... You don't have to know, but it is. I think helps if people who are involved in the practice do know what they're doing mm-hmm. uh, or why they're doing it, and they choose to participate and bring their energy in a positive way to the celebration or to a spell or a ritual um, so that they see it as more than just chowing down. Mm-hmm. So, so what is one of the spells in your book that you use the most? That's a hard question. I'm not quite sure. I often, okay, first of all, let me say that one of the things about kitchen witchcraft Mm -hmm. that separates it somewhat from other forms of witchcraft is that a lot of our spells are very, very simple, and our rituals are everyday practices that we engage in. So um, sweeping your kitchen, for example, can be a magic spell as well as a practical mm-hmm. you know, endeavor. As you sweep away the dust, you are also sweeping away bad vibes. So those kinds of everyday practices in uh, kitchen witchcraft are very, very common. We do them every day. Yeah. So a spell that I would do most often, um, I think a lot of the spells that I'm asked to help other people with, let me mm-hmm. put it that way, are prosperity spells and love spells, love and money. I mean, those are the things that most people are looking for, but also protection spells mm-hmm. and healing spells. And so one of the most common spells is probably one for prosperity. And that involves, uh, in kitchen witchcraft, cooking with certain uh, ingredients that we cor- we see as corresponding to prosperity, uh, to uh, prosperity, abundance, money, wealth, whatever that means to you. How is that correspondence made? Is it like a planetary correspondence? That, like that some of the herbs associate with certain planets that are associated with, you know, whether it's money, friendship. Is that how it works? For me, yes, because I was an astrologer long before I became a witch. Um, and before I started doing tarot and other metaphysical practices. So for me, everything has an astrological correspondence. Um, The most common astrological correspondence is that a lot of witches work with, and a lot of magical workers of other stripes too, are are lunar phases. Those are the easiest ones to follow. So that if you are doing a spell for prosperity and you want to increase your wealth or your abundance, you start the spell after the new moon, and you do it as the moon waxes, so that as the um, light, the moon's light grows, so does your abundance. If you want to banish something or let go of something or end a bad habit or whatever it is that you want to eliminate from your life, you do that during the waning moon. Mm-hmm. New moon is a good time to start a new enterprise. 
during the full moon, you see how your practice, whatever the spell you did or whatever endeavor you engaged on, will start to manifest and start to make itself apparent. But beyond that, in, in terms of what you asked, um, we see all ingredients and everything on earth as having some celestial correspondence. Mm -hmm. And we bring that into our work as kitchen witches. Wow. And it ends up tasting good, too? Yes. And ideally, you want it to taste good. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, you know, like, what does a little bit of Jupiter and a little bit of Venus and a whole lot of Mars taste like? <laughs> well, yes. Actually, there are certain, every plant, uh, everything is connected to uh, yeah. the ownership of a particular um, plant and or a particular planet. So let's say you're doing a love spell. Um, raspberries and strawberries in particular are ruled by the planet Venus. And we associate Venus as the planet of that rules love and relationships of all kinds. And there's also a lot of symbolism involved. The strawberry, for example, looks like a heart, mm. a red heart. So it reminds us of love. And therefore, if I'm doing a love spell, I might include uh, strawberries and raspberries in the ingredients. So love is definitely about the desserts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> um, I guess like the the um, the uh, the curses would be like bitter. <laughs> do, do you have any curses laid there? Like, is there any like hexing? I don't, or... do, I don't do curses myself, mm -hmm. uh, but there are many people I know and feel uh, are respectable people in the in the witchy community who say that you need to be able to learn to curse, um, cast curses. What I tend to do instead is maybe um, a banishing magic or binding magic to mm -hmm. prevent harm from others. And, you know, that comes in handy. But I, I, I believe personally, and I'm not alone in this, that whatever energy you put out into the universe will come back to you threefold. So I'm not so likely to put out a lot of um, harmful spells, spells that are intended to harm others. Right. Be more likely, as I said, to try to block their energy, maybe do a boomerang spell that reflects back whatever they send to me so that it will bounce back to them. Hmm. So is kitchen magic something that goes back all the way into, you know, like, like how far back does it go? Like when did it begin or is there even knowledge of when it started? I don't think we know how old it is. It's probably the oldest form of magic. Uh, we certainly know that it goes back to ancient times in, well, first of all, it's it's rooted in old hearth magic. And in ancient Greece and Rome, for example, they the cities had um, a communal hearth, which was both a place where people might gather to cook and eat together, but it was also a place for uh, engaging in rituals and for making offerings to the deities. Uh, one of the ones that is connected with 
um, kitchen witchery especially is the Greek goddess Hestia, and in Rome her name was Vesta, and in those cities in uh, thousands of years ago, the fires in the hearth were kept burning all the time. You probably heard of the Vestal Virgins, who were the ones who kept the fires going, um, dedicated to the goddess Vesta in ancient Rome. And so we know it goes back that far, but probably far further than that, probably far beyond written time. Hmm. Do you think it was probably the most common form of magic throughout time? I think it was certainly part of that, yes. Or folk, you know, yeah, yeah. And um, how, how do you think people will use that now? Like, one of the things, too, like most people just eat out or just eat processed food. <laughs> well, I think that kitchen witchcraft um, is more likely to focus on making it yourself because mm -hmm. that is part of the ritual itself, choosing the ingredients that you use so that they uh, correspond to your intention, choosing ingredients that have magical components that will enhance whatever you're doing, and the shared activity, if you're doing it particularly with other people or for other people, is something you're probably not going to do at McDonald's. <laughs> so I think the kitchen witchcraft is is sort of a reaction to our fast mm -hmm. culture. I mean, the reason mm. that it is gaining popularity, in my opinion, is a reaction to that and mm -hmm. getting back to having a relationship with the ingredients, with the plants and the animals and wherever the food comes from, and seeing all of that as sacred, seeing all of that as part of nourishing yourself as well as um, sharing that with other people and bringing it into spellcraft. That is definitely something that we sort of have lost over the last 20 or 30 years, I think, is that eating together. Like when I was a kid, it was an important thing in my family. You know? Me too. And now I don't know of anybody who really does it. Yeah, I think we have lost that part of our tradition and um, kitchen witchcraft is attempting, I think, to restore that and to see the significance of how important that really is to our relationships with ourselves, with each other, with our communities, and with the planet in general, as well as the plants and the animals that live here and those from which we draw upon. What is it that gives... One of the things, like, what is it that gives, I was going to ask, what is it that gives these things magical properties? But when I sometimes look at nature, my, my assumption is that everything in nature has its own magical property. I agree with you. And I think that um, most kitchen witches and uh, also healers who work with herbal remedies and plant plant remedies would also agree with that, as well as probably a lot of people who um, are the indigenous people in our cultures and people who are natural farmers, um, master naturalists. You know, a lot of people who work with the natural world would certainly say that. Yeah. Everything is spirit. Yeah, that's also like another big 
trend right now, too, and I've done a lot of episodes on it, is plant medicine. People are sort of going, trying to get away from the pharmaceuticals and going back more towards natural herbs and things like that. Mm-hmm. Yes. And kitchen witchcraft also involves that. It's not only about preparing food. It's also many of us are healers. Many of us do use natural healing methods. Hmm. So you, so do you have like some, some potions and things like that in there? I'm sorry, say that again? Do you have like potions in it? Um, well, I think first of all that if we go back to ancient times again, um, healers and witches were basically the same thing. Yeah. There wasn't a distinction in early times. And kitchen witches not only, um, made made food for people, but they also in their kitchens created remedies, medicinal remedies and herbal concoctions and witches brews and all of that. Mm-hmm. And we're bringing that back into, I think, our work today. Hmm. Is chicken soup really good for a cold? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, think about it. It gives you comfort and, and a feeling of warmth and being nurtured, right? Yeah. So what can be wrong with that? And also it depends on what you put in it. I, I mean, I think that, yes, healing food, food that contains um, natural ingredients. I tend to eat mostly organic food. Um, I live on a cattle ranch where we have grass-fed beef. And um, I think that paying attention to the actual food that you eat and appreciating where it came from has got to be a healing experience. So, yeah, I think chicken soup is probably... It, probably anything that you believe is going to help you will. Hmm. It's that emotional aspect, I guess. Because there always you know, is well, that emotional aspect to any type of spell. Yes, indeed. The emotions, your your focus, your intention, your feeling, everything that you bring to it is what makes it work. I mean, you don't have to have any special tools. You don't need a magic wand or a pentagram or a chalice or anything to work a spell. It's all in your mind. It's all in your intention. And the more emotion, the more passion, the more focus you can bring to it, the stronger your spell will be. What is a spell exactly? Like, like for my listeners who are not familiar with witchcraft or magic and might think that, you know, that there's no science to a spell when there's really actually a whole lot of stuff going on in a spell. Like, well, what exactly can, is it? In my um, perspective, from my perspective, it's creating an intention, mm-hmm. imbuing it with emotion, focusing your will, and putting it out there, it's it's um, a practice, usually some sort of ritual, although it doesn't have to be a really fancy ritual, that is intended to create an outcome. So you're working with cosmic energies, earth energies, your own energies uh, to produce an outcome, which can be simple, like getting a parking place in a crowded mall, at, you know, day before Christmas, or it can be as simple as just um, giving a blessing before you eat a meal. Hmm. It can be very, very complex. It can 
uh, take weeks. There are things that are call, called long weavings, mm -hmm. which you know may take weeks or months to complete with a lot of steps in between. Wow. How, how does the universe know? Like, like, why does it work? Like, why does the universe respond to our intention, do you think? Because we're all one. We're all part of everything. That's a great answer. <laughs> <laughs> we're one at the universe. Yeah, I mean, even if you don't know that you're working with the universe, you are. You can't escape it. You can't separate yourself from everything else. Hmm. Yeah, it's. I wonder what what people like. It, it's like so many people don't know that though. So many people do not know that they can have pretty much whatever they want in this life by just asking the universe for it. That's the law of attraction: is putting out into the universe the request and the intention that you have. And believing that it's going to come back to you. That's a big part of it, too. The believing, yeah. Yeah. I mean, doubt is like pouring water on a fire. It's going to put out your spell. So you have to realize that if you, well, there's a saying, um, you'll see it when you believe it. And if you don't believe in your own power, you're less likely to be able to manifest it. That's not always true. I've, I often say that, a lot of the black magicians are people who don't even know that they're doing it. Like somebody cuts you off uh, when you're driving down the highway and you curse that person. That's a, that's a, that's black magic. You may not have a whole lot of power to do anything with it because you're not focused. You haven't honed your skills. You don't really know what you're doing, but nonetheless, um, yes, everything you do is putting energy out into that cosmic web into the universe, and it will resonate through all of that web, if you will, um, positive or negative. But yes, you're right. You can have whatever you want, and you are getting everything that you've asked for all the time. You look at your life, and you're not happy with it. Well, then change your story, because you have attracted whatever you have in your life now. You've manifested that. Mm -hmm. And you can change it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, for me, the, the challenge with that is um, eliminating eliminating all that past programming that says I couldn't, that I grew mm -hmm. up with as a kid. And I think the other thing that gets in the way, at least for me personally, is this idea of there's only two choices, this or that, good or bad, plus or minus, when there's really an infinite number of possibilities of choices that are available. Yes, I agree with you. The universe isn't a binary system. You know, it's it's infinite, far beyond what we can possibly imagine. And yes, there are so many more possibilities than many of us allow ourselves to embrace or even, you know, dabble with. Mm -hmm. You like like you said, we've all been fed a lot of self-limiting negative programming that has kept us trapped even into these stages of life. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I recognize it more now, you know, as I'm older, but, you know, during those younger younger part of my life where my, you know, 
my thoughts were controlling me instead of me controlling my thoughts, I had she felt like I had no control. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's one of the good things about getting older, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I think so. At least for some people, you know, I don't know what it's like for everyone. I mean, some people too. Like I meet young people too that are sort of already there. You know, I meet somebody who's twenty who's already aware that you know. There's all kinds of choices available to them, too. So, I don't know. I think it's just something that's been growing in our lifetime, maybe. I hope so. Yeah. Um, so, in the book, is, is it just, you? are you just using cooking readings? Or do you use some of the other things that you've written about in some of your other books, like tarot and divination and... A little bit. That's not the major focus of this particular book. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I um, particularly in spell work, I often bring in tarot cards because they have such strong visual imagery that can be used to help people focus their minds. So yes, I do bring things like that in. Um, and certainly, as I mentioned before, I bring in astrology, the connections between um, various foods and the the various planets and sun and moon. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I incorporate that. But yes, in numerology also, because number often the numbers of certain ingredients that you put into something that you're working as a spell, which may be a meal, um, those numbers have meaning also that can contribute to the power of the spell that you're working or the ritual. Hmm. So, some, so something like um, eight strawberries could be like infinite love. Well, I would often use strawberries in a, uh, something that I was making for a love spell. I mean, one of the yeah. great love spells you can do is a banana split. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. Um, <laughs> <laughs> First of all, look at the symbolism you've got here. And I, I would put strawberries in it, too. Um, the banana is a phallic shape. <laughs> that contributes. Chocolate, hot fudge or whatever. I mean, chocolate is one of the you know, big-time uh, foods related to love, in, incorporated in love spells because we connect it with love. I mean, you don't give artichokes at Valentine's Day, right? No. Yeah, you give chocolate. <laughs> So like an aphrodisiac. Yeah, exactly. And then you've got ice cream, which is very nurturing. You know, it comes from milk. So, and and nuts are connected with, uh, walnuts in particular, and pecans, with um, the mind, because they look like the two lobes of your brain. So you're focusing your, you know, your mental activity and your intention and your communication skills with all this other stuff. So... Yeah, you want to do a love spell? Go out and have a banana split with your partner. Oh, man, I was thinking something else with those nuts. <laughs> I can see that. You wrote a book on sex magic. <laughs> yes, I did. <laughs> and it's a very powerful and fun form of magic, too. <laughs> and that's another one, too, though. Like when, from what I've read about sex magic is... You know, you kind of create what you... I don't know if I... It, I mean, it's kind of like if I guess from Aleister Crowley, probably. Mm-hmm. About creating 
a symbol in your mind that, that represents your intention and then focusing on it during the moment of climax during sex. To, and then yeah. you kind of just forget about it and wait for it to manifest. Yeah, that's right. What you do is you, first of all, as you said, create a symbol. And you can do that either by um, creating a visual image or you may have heard of something called a sigil. Mm-hmm. Which okay, um, And you can create something like that, which encompasses your uh, intention. And you focus on that and you just fuel it with this very powerful energy that's raised during sex. And then as, as you said, you let it go. You don't keep thinking about it. It's sort of like, you know, you put a um, letter in a mailbox and you expect that it's going to go where it's supposed to go. You don't worry about it after that. Yeah. So you let your energy fuel that particular moment. You focus it on that particular symbol or image that you've created in your mind for whatever outcome you seek. And just let it go. Hmm. Very powerful form of magic. And Aleister Crowley was probably the one who most popularized it in the Western world. But right. it's been around a very long time. Yeah, he was just like, I guess, the first one I was exposed to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> probably a lot of people my age, he was like sort of the first influences or first guys that put that stuff out there. Yeah, and he was such a promoter anyway. So <laughs> he was, <laughs> and he liked to be so outrageous and really tweet those uptight Victorians that, um, you know, he got a lot of attention. Yeah, he liked to be seen around town with all different women. <laughs> you know, and I think too, you know, magic has sort of survived off of that mystique almost you know i think that's part of what has kept witchcraft and the occult and magic and mystery schools alive is that sort of the mystique the unknown i think some of the you know what's going on behind those closed doors kind of attitude yeah i think that's part of it although um it's so much more open and so much more in everyday worlds these now i mean i live in a very small, very conservative Texas town. And we have on one street, I think about four witchy shops. Um, and we have groups that meet after church to do tarot readings. It, you know, it's, it's becoming much more accepted. Younger people are so much more open to this than people were when you and I were growing up. Mm. It wasn't like that in Alabama, that's for sure. <laughs> Texas well, must be more progressive. Yeah, I've read that um, that Wicca is the fastest growing religion in America. And it's even allowed uh, in the U.S. military. You can have it on your dog tags if you want to. Hmm. Interesting. How long have you been a witch? What got you into it? How long? I think I was born into it. Not that I'm a hereditary witch, mm-hmm. but that from the even before I started school, so I must have been four or so, um, I felt telepathy. Uh, I felt a strong connection with the earth and the cosmos. I did not um, feel any connection with organized religion and rejected that. So I think I was born a witch. I just didn't know that until probably... When I was in my late 30s, I actually started practicing. Mm-hmm. And 
writing about it. I started studying astrology when I was about 25. So I've pretty much always been interested in metaphysical things. Were you, were you raised under like a different religion with your parents? No, I was raised basic Methodist. Huh. <laughs> Interesting. I was raised Catholic. <laughs> well, well, the Catholic religion actually has a lot more magic in it than the Methodist. I mean, the Methodist, I hope I'm not going to offend people, but it's, it's pretty stripped down. Mm-hmm. I mean, the rituals are pretty basic, whereas in high mass and Catholic. Yeah, it's very symbolic. A lot of symbolism and a lot of magical stuff that most people may not realize. But I mean, you've got the chalice, which you have in witchcraft. Mm-hmm. You know, right? So, yeah, there's a lot of similarities. Yeah, it comes yeah. out of the old pagan religions, and that's part of the reason they had to take over that and co-opt the pagan religions into Christianity when it, you know, started coming into the fore. Ireland was one of the hardest ones to win over, but. Um, they eventually did bring the goddess Bridget, who was one of the most beloved pagan deities in Ireland. They had mm-hmm. to canonize her and make her a saint so that, you know, that would help the Irish people accept Christianity. <laughs> Give them a saint. <laughs> yeah, make her a saint. <laughs> yeah, there are a lot of similarities. Like, I remember when I first started reading stuff about, I think it was, what was it called, the Tetragrammaton. You know, the mm-hmm. four-letter name of, of God that you always see above the cross in the Catholic churches, you know, and how that corresponds to the four elements that are used in, in witchcraft. Yes, indeed. It's all connected. You've all borrowed out of each other. All derivative. <laughs> <laughs> so when you started doing it, like, like, well, what was it that attracted you to it? What, what, I mean, was it because you had already noticed abilities in yourself that were supernatural? Were you just, or, or you just wanted to go closer to nature? Um, I, I enjoyed the natural part of it, yes, but also it just seemed to make more sense to me. And it had much more richness than the traditions I had been brought up in. Mm-hmm. And also one of the things that for me was important was uh, in Wicca, at least, not this is not true of all magical traditions, but um, a female deity. Because mm-hmm. when you're raised in most of the, um, the world's major religions, you've got a male god, which, you know, if you're brought up a woman, you're born female, that may not necessarily resonate so much with you. You don't necessarily like um, having the limitations that those conventional or that the you know the world's major religions put on women. And Wicca honors a female deity. That doesn't mean that men are excluded because mm. we see the god as the consort of the goddess, and certainly you need both energies for creativity. So it's, they are incorporated, but that was one of the big things for me. And we saw Wicca really beginning to take off in connection with the rise of feminism in the early 70s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. You, I was, you know, the whole, the whole male dominance of like the Aramaic religions mm-hmm. is bizarre. I, <laughs> You know, I, I think it's bizarre to even think that, you know, 
I mean, there's definitely negative, I mean, male and female or, or, or polarities. There's polarities in the universe. Our universe, everything has a polarity, a, a, an opposite. You know, what do you call it? Negative, positive, male, female. It doesn't matter. Everything has that. But to think that, that the, the actual creator of all these laws that are sustaining our universe is some specific male gender or anything, I find it, it kind of silly. I imagine that, that it's going to be something beyond a gender. Yes. Or beyond okay. the pure. Because if it created polarity, then it has to be beyond polarity. I agree with you. Hmm. It's weird. You know. <laughs> so, so what is your favorite thing? What is your favorite thing about writing these books? Like, like what is it you love the most about what you do? Because you've written so many, and you've been doing this for so long, have influenced everybody. Yeah, I have, I have about 50 books that have been published now. <laughs> and, you know, then there are half a dozen that are in a drawer someplace that haven't been picked up. But, yeah, I have been doing it for a very long time. I actually started telling stories before I could read or write. So I've been doing mm -hmm. it since I was a little girl. And I was a first... Uh, first published writer when I was 15, I had a, my own newspaper column. And then when I was 18, I became a radio reporter. Mm -hmm. By the time I was 26, I had a TV show in Boston. Um, so I've been doing it, yeah, for a very, very long time. What I like best about it, oh, there's so many things. I, I can't imagine doing anything else. I've done it all my life, first yeah. of all. I enjoy being able to share ideas with other people, hopefully help them. I love hearing from readers, particularly young readers. I try to inspire um, particularly young women, and that has been um, something that's opened up a lot for me in the last 10, 12 years or so, as a lot of young women have gotten involved in this. Um, basically, I guess... There's pretty pretty much everything about it I like. I like being able to work on my own schedule. I have the benefit of having wonderful editors and great publishers, which not every writer will say. Um, and writing also is a wonderful form of magic. And a lot of people don't necessarily know that. Mm -hmm. But the same things that you bring to magic are the things that you bring to your writing. First of all, you create an idea in your mind, then you imbue it with emotion, and then you write it down and you bring it into the third dimension and send it out into the world. Hmm. So there are a lot of connections between <laughs> Yeah, writing is a magical act. Playing music is. is a magical act. Cooking a meal is a magical act. Well, everything is if you see it that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We just take it for granted that we're actually doing these things. Well, and being aware of what you're doing is part mm -hmm. of it. Most people just do without thinking about it. But in the practice of magic, you're aware of every step that you are engaging in and see it as part of the journey to your outcome that you're seeking. Um, what do you think, what, what is the difference between the audience that you're writing to now versus the audience that you're writing to 30 years ago? I think the audience I'm writing to now is much younger. Um, I have high school girls, 
mostly girls, but also men too, young young men, um, who get in touch with me a lot. I actually had, um, which was very interesting, a group of seniors, girls seniors in a Catholic school, parochial school, mm-hmm. who their senior project was to learn about another religion. And so they had to interview people who were practitioners of other religions, and they got in touch with me and wanted to learn about Wicca. And that was their senior project, was interviewing me and working it into their uh, their daily practice. And so that was a lot of fun for me. So I, I, my major audience now, I think, probably has dropped down to about age 16, um, whereas... 30 years ago, I was probably writing for people in their 30s or maybe 40s even. And that still is part of my audience, but uh, I think it's a much younger audience. I've, there's a uh, kind of witchy store in my community that sells my books. And one day I was visiting with friends there, and I saw a girl who was probably about 14, and she had one of my books under her arm. And I walked over to her and introduced myself and said, I'm the author. Would you like me to autograph your book for you? And she was so thrilled and it was really fun for me. <laughs> Might have been the first time she ever met her, you know, an author yeah. in person <laughs> and saw somebody who was a witch who looked as ordinary as I do. <laughs> That's great. I can't, what was synchronicity there? Somebody buying your book when, while you're in the store. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> yeah, I pay attention to synchronicities all the time. They are a very big part of my life, particularly when I'm driving because I'm not a very good driver. And so if I get a message that says slow down or, you know, pay attention or I listen to that. Those synchronicities have saved me a lot of aggravation. <laughs> yeah, the one I always get is the eleven eleven on the clock. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I see that. It, oh, I won't say every day, but I saw it this morning, and um, I probably see it a couple times a week at least. And for me, that's a pay attention symbol. I don't know for you. For me, I think it's a sign that I'm on the right path. Yeah. Especially like like, like for a couple of weeks, like I swear I saw the eleven eleven twice a day for like four or five days in a row. What was going on in your life at that time? Nothing actually, nothing bad anyway. Nothing. It, was, it doesn't have to be bad. I just wondered. I, yeah, it was, I, I, I think what was going on is it was going smoothly for a change. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've also heard that it's sort of a portal. Um, you may have heard that too, kind of mm-hmm. a doorway. You see, you know, those pillars. Um, so when I see that, I try to stop and think, what was I doing or thinking about at that particular time, and what kind of message is coming through to me related to that? Hmm. Interesting. Now i got to think about that one. <laughs> well, it may not be the same for you. I don't know. I never considered it. I just took it as a sign that things were going well and to keep going and doing what I was doing. Okay, then that's what it is for you. Hmm. That's one of the interesting things about another thing about like like when I interview psychics, every, every psychic has their own psychic language, I guess. That they, they, they create you know a catalog of symbols and words and colors, assign them different meanings. So that when they give a reading, 
that when those things appear, then they tell the client what, you know, those symbols are. Mm-hmm. And you learn your symbols by paying attention to them. Like if I find coins on the street or in the supermarket or someplace that they're not normally going to be, I find that usually within about a week, I'm going to get money. And it's not always from an expected source, but that's a sign for me. Hmm. It's not just me. I think other people probably have that too. Um, when I see a, a male cardinal arrive, it, it's a sign for me that my deceased partner is showing up to say hi. Yeah, uh, we all I do that one too. Yeah, you've heard that one before too. I yeah. think it's pretty cool. Yeah, I like so, that yeah, one. we all have that. Hmm. And it's good, I think, for me at least, to pay attention to that and realize that I'm receiving communication, whether it's from my spirit guides or from a deceased friend on the other side or my own uh, inner self, wherever that's coming from, those symbols have meaning and they're trying to get my attention. I agree. I agree a hundred percent that, that if you, if you, when I pay attention and look for those type of signs, I will see them. And, and I also agree that, that, you know, whether it's spirit guys or angels or ancestors or universe or, you know, whatever you want to refer to these consciousnesses or whatever it is outside, that's their way of trying to point or, or communicate with us, mm-hmm. help us and along. And dense creatures, it takes a lot for them to create, to actually communicate with us in some cases. I imagine it would be frustrating for them, yeah. Yeah, I read something, and I cannot remember where it was at the moment, but um, a, a guy who was a medium and worked with spirit forces said that it's like standing on um, one side of a very dense, dark, dirty window trying to communicate with a really ignorant person, secretary on the other side, so that he or she can write down the message. And it is supposedly very frustrating for them. Because hmm. we're pretty slow. Not that we are inherently slow, but I think we're taught to be that way. We're taught to deny all this. We're taught to say, oh, you know, that's not real. It's just your imagination. Well, just your imagination? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's changing now. It is. I would imagine that's probably one of the big things that are changing with your audience is that your audience are probably would be reading your material from a much more open mind than what it would have been yeah. 30 years ago. I think so, certainly. And, I mean, little kids, if you ever talk to little kids before they've started school and gotten programmed, um, they're very intuitive and they get all kinds of stuff from you know, the other side. Mm-hmm. They haven't lost that connection yet. No, I still had it too when I was a kid. Well, I still have it now, but now I have a whole bunch of, well, I don't know, I like the term analytical overlay. <laughs> it's true. We do. And I also think that um, technology plays a part in that as we have become more removed from nature, the natural world, mm-hmm. and spend much more time on technology, um, we've lost a lot of that connection. Or it, we've silenced it temporarily, I'll put it that way. I don't think it's ever lost. Mm-hmm. We just don't put focus on it anymore. Yeah, I think the technology thing works 
both ways. I think it can distract people from who they are. But now there's so much information out there, it can also guide people to who they are. Indeed. We wouldn't be talking if it weren't for technology. Right. Yeah. I mean, people wouldn't have access to my podcast or, or anything. Because when I was young, all I had was like a small bookstore. <laughs> like one shelf of books to choose from on these topics. That was it. Now people have unlimited access to everything. Yeah, and I agree with you. That's both a positive thing and a negative thing. I mean, we have access. A, a lot of people would never have known about me or my work if it weren't for all the technology we have now. And as a writer, I mean, I just, I, I love my computer. I mean, I remember, <laughs> not that it was a bad thing necessarily, but doing research in the library where I had to order books and wait for them to come in for a couple of weeks and then search through tons of stuff to find a little bit of information that I can now find online in two minutes. So Google has improved your writing? Not Google. I use DuckDuckGo. DuckDuckGo? on Google these days. <laughs> Censorship is not really uh, something that I find appealing. And I don't like the way they do their logarithm so that, you know, you're only going to get a few options. There may be a thousand possibilities out there for you, but you're not going to be able to access them. They're going to choose which ones they give you. Hmm. Yeah, I've used DuckDuckGo without regularly. It gives me a few more options, and I feel like I'm not quite as much under Google's um, searchlight. Mm -hmm. It's you know, it, it doesn't screen out everything. Certainly, I mean, you know, Microsoft is still going to get in there and. It's not going to protect me from my searches are still going to be available to anybody. But I find that um, I have more options. It doesn't do as much censoring of material. Hmm. That's but, just my experience. Yeah. But still, in a way, you don't have to spend all that time looking for books. <laughs> that kind of information like it used to be. Oh, yeah. I can write a book now in three or four months, which is basically all my publisher gives me or my nonfiction publishers give me. Um, fiction books take a lot longer. But, um, yeah, I couldn't have done that 30 years ago. Wow. How long, how long did it take to read a book back then? Mm, a couple of years, maybe. Wow. What a difference. And then think going back before we had any of this, I mean, we had to write it all out by hand. We <laughs> <laughs> had to crank a hand press to get the book out there. <laughs> and yeah. use papyrus, maybe. You, you know, wrote everything on, on papyrus or on uh, vellum or something like that. That's when I think, ink. <laughs> you know, it, for that, for them, it had to be really worth writing down. <laughs> You know, that's one of the things, like, like I think like about the ancient texts a lot, because I think one of the things that people don't think is, like, oh, they just wrote this stuff down for no reason. It's like, no, it, it had to have been important to them for them to write it down, because it takes yeah. a lot of effort. It wasn't something that was common back then. Indeed. Well, even back in the 1800s, a lot of people couldn't read or write. Yeah, well, I believe that one one book. I don't not really, that's really true, but it gave this analogy that one of the first 
forms of magic was writing, reading and writing because a person could transmit a message without actually seeing the person. So the people would assume that it was magic. Yeah. Yeah, that's true because they couldn't do it themselves. So they had to assume that it was, this was a person who had special skills. Yeah. Reading and writing. <laughs> <laughs> which we have now um, do you think that ancient cultures had you know relied on magic more than we do well sure um, I mean look at the Egyptians the Druids mm -hmm. yeah a lot of ancient cultures relied very heavily on and they believed in it you know that was part of part of their existence. They didn't necessarily separate themselves from the natural world or the cosmos the way we do. You know, they interacted with it all the time. And magic is certainly, you can find magic spells, as I said, in ancient Egypt, Egyptian texts. And um, the Druids certainly practiced a lot of magic. And it probably goes back far beyond anything that we can conceive of. And maybe the ancient, I would assume probably the ancient Atlanteans and other cultures practice magic also. I, I agree. I agree. I think, you know, for them, though, I mean, we, can call, we call it magic or supernatural. I think for them, though, it was just another technology, but natural technology <laughs> or technology of consciousness. I'm not really sure how to describe it, but. Oh, we got it kind of along those lines. Yeah, that's a good way of thinking of it. So what's your next book going to be about? I'm not sure. I'm, um, I've am i been focusing a lot on writing fiction lately. I write a um, mystery series that's set in the 1920s. And the last book in the series was all about um, occultists. And there were witches and wizards and um, a tarot reader, an astrologer, resident ghost in an old castle, that sort of thing. So most mm -hmm. of what I've been writing now is um, is fiction, not nonfiction. Although I've been thinking about proposing to my editors um, doing a companion workbook, a tarot workbook, because I teach a tarot class uh, once a week, and one of my students brought in a wonderful book that is a journal and also uh, a tool where she can record things that we learn about in our class. And I thought, well, I don't have one of those that, as a companion to my tarot books. Maybe I should write one. And I could, you know, use a lot of the material that's already in those tarot books, but approach it in a way that would help students to learn rather than just reading something, they could actually engage in writing down their own experiences, their own spells, and keep a, a journal of that. Hmm. So I might do that next. When it comes to tarot, do you go by like, like, like the hard meanings of the cards that were written in the book, or do you believe in a more intuitive approach, or a mixture of both? Um, well, what I usually recommend, and this is in my in my classes, but also when I do readings for people and for myself, the very first thing I do is look at the imagery and see what comes up for me intuitively. Mm -hmm. uh, 
that doesn't mean I won't go back and look at um, what other people have said about the cards, because that's helpful to me, too. But I think that the very first thing should be what is your inner self telling you, what's your subconscious bringing up that you need to know about. Because I've found that when I'm doing a reading, um, I am usually ask somebody, is there something in particular that you want to know about? Is there something that's forefront in your mind that you know, you've come to me for a reading to learn more about. And sometimes they'll say, oh, no, I just want a general reading. And then I'll lay out a spread for them, and I can see right away that there is something that's, you know, pertinent, forefront in their minds, and that's going to show up in the cards anyway. Mm-hmm. So I think intuition comes first, and then, you know, just studying and practice like everything else. You know, the more I do it, the, you know, more... Um, more I can bring to a reading for people. I can, you know, more other readers that I talk to or books that I read about it can help me to gain knowledge and share that with others as well. Hmm. Yeah, my way, my, my way has changed too over, you know, because I started like when I was like 12 and it's just evolved mm-hmm. the how I do it. Well, hopefully everything does. <laughs> but when I was a kid, like all I had was a little handbook. <laughs> I can't put the cards. And once in a while, I'll go back and look at my books, too, when I'm doing a reading. Say, hey, what did I say about this 10 years ago? Or is there something I've forgotten that I used to know? Mm-hmm. Do you think the court cards normally represent people? I think they often do. Yeah. They don't have to. They can represent other things, too. But they often do for me in the readings that I do. Mm. That was always one of the things that sort of threw me off was the different ideas of the court cards. Well, it doesn't. I I don't think they always mean the same thing. They can mean different parts of yourself. They can mm-hmm. be symbolic of different uh, things that are going on in your life. I mean, if you draw a page, for example, it may mean that you're embarking on something new. You don't necessarily feel that you're quite comfortable with it yet, and you're you know, you're a student in the process. It doesn't necessarily have to be a young person that you know. Mm-hmm. King might show mastery in a particular area of your life or having leadership abilities and, and be, taking charge of something that's going on. It doesn't necessarily have to mean, you know, a father figure or, a, you know, a, a leader in your community. Mm-hmm. But it can. Yeah. Yeah. You know, because I always, I know there was like, I read one book where it associated each card with because it was twelve. There's twelve court cards, so they went with the astrology route of giving them all astrological, which does show up on the cards themselves also. But then there's like the the, uh, the obviously the male female archetypes and then all the different elements. Mm-hmm. There's the actual people perspective. There's so many different ways to look at them. Like like the court cards for me are almost like what. Where I almost do have to rely on my intuition on which type of definition I'm going to go with on them. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they really are uh, very literal. I mean, I did a reading last week for a man, um, and the um, one of the cards that came up it was a past, present, future reading. Um, in the the future position, it was the Queen of Swords. And I interpreted that as being a strong, intelligent woman uh, in a position to communicate 
very clearly, and maybe that there was some sort of negotiation or legal situation going on that was related to that. Turns out he was in the middle of mediation for uh, a divorce and child uh, child custody, and his he was the next week meeting with um, the person who was going to be deciding the case, who was a woman. Hmm. So you know, in that case, it was very <laughs> yeah, it was really an applicable card for that. Definitely. So it can be, and but it doesn't always have to be. Right. Yeah, it, it's fascinating. Tarot, the tarot journey never ends, that's for sure. Never. It's endlessly fascinating for me, too. Have you ever um, tried to create your own deck? I've never created my own deck. I've, I've, I've colored decks when I belonged to um, mm -hmm. Builders of the Additum. You know, they had the whole you know, deck that you had to color in. Mm -hmm. But I've never actually created my own deck. I started doing one. I got about halfway through and then lost steam. But I've got, you know, maybe 40 that mm. I've done. I don't know if I'll ever finish them. Yeah, it would take me a long time to do it because I would have to write down first all the symbol symbologies I would want to include in each card. and It's a lot of cards. <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, you want me to show you one? Yeah, right? yeah, definitely. Okay, I'll show you one. Let me grab it off the wall. Okay, this is... Maybe you can see it here in the screen. Can you see it this yep. way? Yep. Okay, um, this is the world card for me. And cool. each of the outer circles... Um, is representative of one of the elements. Mm -hmm. and the three that are in the middle, you probably can't see it here, but it has um, an affirmation in it that says, I am in harmony with divine will and at one with the universe, and it's created into a sigil. And then because I use a lot of Celtic symbolism, because they, to me they represent um, the twists and turns in life's journey, mm -hmm. all around the outside, and then the spirals in the corner. So, that's my world. Card. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you finish it and get it out. <laughs> oh, no, I've never planned to have them no. go out into the world. I just did them just for, for myself. You? Yeah, and and I use them in magic spells. And I also um, do you do, do you do you know feng shui? A little bit, yeah. So I hang them in different places in my home, um, in relationship to the the different gua and feng shui in order to attract whatever energy it is that I'm trying to manifest. Mm. Yeah. That's another thing that changed, too. You know, it used to be strictly like Western and Eastern traditions, you know. Now you can put feng shui into tarot card usage. Yeah. It's great. It's absolutely great. I used to hate that when people used to argue over different systems and which one was right and which one was wrong, which attribute was right, which one was wrong. That oh, drove me yeah. nuts. <laughs> well, it's all energy. It's all um, information, and why not use it wherever it works for you? I mean, I got into feng shui initially because my first career was as an interior designer, mm -hmm. and um, so much of feng shui is about coordinating your living environment in a way that allows for a smooth. Um, companionable flow of energy through a space. So I realized that um, a lot of interior designers, including me, were doing that automatically. We were creating living environments that were 
um, they were congenial, where the energy was flowing very comfortably. I mean, if you walk into a room, for example, and the first thing you see is the back of a sofa, mm-hmm. what are you going to experience? Immediately, you're going to feel repelled. So, you know, you don't do that in interior design. One of the easiest feng shui cures, which is what we call them, is you walk into a dark space and you feel uncomfortable and uncertain, maybe a little bit anxious. First thing you do is you flip on a light. That's a feng shui cure. So that was how I got into that part of... And feng shui is a school of magic also. Yeah. And I found that it worked in combination with the other things that I was doing. Yeah, it's great that it all works together. Plus, just creating your own system out of systems that already exist. Mm -hmm. It's awesome. Yeah, just tapping into those. They're all out there. Yeah. So um, I want to thank you for coming on today and talking with me. And um, and before we, ra- before we wrap it up, though, where's the best place for listeners to find you and to get your latest book? Well, you can you should be able to get it um, in pretty much any store that sells books, although they may not stock it. They might have to order it for you. But Simon & Schuster is really good at publicity and getting things out there. Um, you can certainly order it from Amazon. Um, pretty much... You should be able to get it anywhere. It's actually this the kitchen, which was um, sort of a new experience for me in one way because it just was released in audiobook also, and I got to pick the audiobook oh, cool. uh, this time. I've never been able to do that before, but I, <laughs> yeah, it was really fun to do that. And so it's available in ebook and pretty much any format you want. Uh, it was released, I think, last Tuesday, a week ago. Yeah. Oh wow! So yeah, I got so it right ready. after. Yeah, it's brand new. I just listened to the audio book this week. So, uh, and, but the the physical print book was just really uh, the launch date was last Tuesday. So, and you should be able to get most of my books pretty easily. They're you know, they're widely circulated and translated into I think about fifteen languages. And so, uh, and do you have a website? I do. It's. Very easy to remember. It's just www.skyalexander.com. Real simple. It is kind of, I, I'm still doing some updates. So mm-hmm. some of the books have not been put on uh, that have just come out. And I'm waiting for one novel that's supposed to be published next month. And I'm waiting for that to come out before I add that to it. But um, yeah, I'd love to be able to have a link for this talk that we've had and I'll put that on I have one from when we talked before mm-hmm. that's on there now but I want to provide people with a lot of links to podcasts like this and other articles and things that they might find interesting rather than just my books absolutely yeah I'll send you the link um, when that's I put great. this episode up and uh, plus now I got video too so yeah this video. one has video the other one I think is just audio yeah so now, so put, now I'm putting out both audio and video That'll be great, and then people will know what I look like now. I mean, the photos I have on my website are all old because my um, editor said, "Well, your audience is young, so you should put an old photo up there." <laughs> <laughs> it makes me I have a fifteen-year-old photo. <laughs> but if we put this up, they'll know what I look like now. Yeah, well, I don't know if they want to know what I look like. <laughs> oh, sure, why not? <laughs> Right. But it's been a lot of fun, and I'm so glad that you asked me to come back. Oh, anytime. You're always welcome back on. Thank you. All right. And just hang on for one moment.
And I'm going to play the outro. And I'm going to put those links in the notes of this episode so my listeners can get your book and find you on your website. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable. You can reach Gary at everythingimaginable2020.com or message him at everythingimaginable2020 at gmail.com. He's also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can buy t-shirts, coffee mugs, and other merchandise to support the cost of producing this podcast. Click on the merchandise link at the top of this page, www.everythingimaginable2020.com. You can also buy the book Enlightenment Guaranteed. It's the only book on Zen that you'll ever need. You can find it on Amazon, and it will change your life. Because remember, everything that it says was first imagined. Love what you listen to today. Don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, and share. Again, thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable with Gary Cochulio.